Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. To our modern world, the Sadducees seem like very reasonable people. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They'd been around for a long time. They were a group of Jews who take their name from Zadok, the high priest at the time of King David. That's quite the pedigree, which was helped by the fact that they tended also to be upper-crust folks, aristocratic, highfalutin, wealthy, and sort of above it all. You can hear that, that sensibility in the way they ask their question of Jesus. The way they pose their question, they make belief in the resurrection seem like a backwoods, superstitious, uneducated idea. People don't rise from the dead. That's the whole point. When you're dead, you're dead. When you put, you, we put the body in the ground, and your body decays, and that's it. That's obvious to anyone who knows anything, anyone who's been around and seen these things. And if you read the first five books of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy, which were the most important scriptures for the Jews, if you read those books, you never hear the word resurrection. God never says On the last day, I will raise you and all the dead. And so the Sadducees didn't believe in it. They came to Jesus quite prepared. Now, Jesus seems to be a bit more authoritative than most. He's not your run-of-the-mill Pharisee. The Pharisees were the usual opponents of the Sadducees in debate. They believed in the resurrection, the Pharisees did. But they also believed in lots of things that weren't written in the books of Moses. They believed lots of things that were just traditions, traditions of the elders, things they couldn't prove with the word of God. But Jesus, he's been railing on the Pharisees, railing against the traditions of men. So he's clearly not a Pharisee. But he's also teaching the resurrection. So the Sadducees came to Jesus with what they thought was a bulletproof argument. There was a woman who married a man, but her husband died, leaving her no children. Under the laws of the Old Testament, from the books of Moses, according to God's word, the dead man's brother was obligated to marry the widow and to bring up children on behalf of his brother so that his name would go on. So the Sadducees said... The widow married her brother-in-law, but he also died, leaving her no children. Good news, there's another brother. So she marries him, and he suffers the same fate, and still she has no children. This goes on for seven brothers, and at last the woman herself dies. I imagine that at this point, the Sadducees were having trouble containing their grins. They were just licking their chops, waiting for Jesus to fall into their trap. They could have made the same point with just two husbands, but they were going for an effect here. Seven husbands. What a ridiculous story. But, hypothetically, it could happen. And if it did, well, whose wife would she be in the resurrection? Certainly not all seven. That sounds more like a punishment than a reward. Maybe just the first. Maybe just the last. Or maybe she'd get to choose which one had been her favorite. The Sadducees think that their argument breaks the resurrection. 
It makes much more sense simply to say what everyone can observe, that when her first husband died, that was it. End of life, end of marriage, end of story, and so on down the line, so that in the end it's just a classic tragedy, and nobody makes it out alive. To our modern world, the Sadducees sound very reasonable. Although their argument is based on the scriptures, they're thinking about the world and life and existence in the same way that we tend to think about it. That what you see is what you get. But there is a basic problem the Sadducees miss, and this is really helpful to keep in mind as you make your way through life. The world is upside down. It was turned upside down by sin. But to us sinful human beings, it appears quite natural, quite normal. It seems quite ordinary that people die and are buried, and that's it. It seems quite reasonable to conclude that this life is all there is, so you may as well try to get the most out of it. It seems sensible to spend our days thinking about what we'll eat and what we'll wear and how we'll amuse ourselves and to give no thought to what lies beyond the grave. Because as far as we can see, there is nothing that lies beyond the grave. There's a horizon beyond which we cannot see, and so we cannot help concluding that it is more of the same. That is how the world looks when it is turned upside down. We hear about this encounter with the Sadducees, this conversation between Jesus and the Sadducees, in the Gospels of Matthew and Mark, as well as Luke. And in those accounts, Jesus says something that doesn't get picked up by Luke. He begins his reply by saying to the Sadducees, You are wrong, for you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. You are wrong from the outset, from your first step, because you haven't been paying attention, Jesus says. You haven't been listening to God's word, though you claim it as your authority. If you had been paying attention, you would know that what you see is not what you get. You'd know that the world was turned upside down by sin and that Jesus, I, Jesus, the Messiah, have come to set things aright, to flip things back over. You'd know that death is no obstacle for God, for the power of God is both to kill and to make alive, to wound and to heal, and death will have no dominion in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not of this world. It is not like this world. The last are first and the first are last. The pure and holy are like whitewashed tombs. And the unclean and defiled are made pure. The outcasts are the friends of God. And the mighty are cast down from their thrones. The humble are lifted up and the hungry are filled with good things. And promises are not just waiting to be broken. But they are always, always kept. And the dead will rise and in the age to come... There is no marrying or giving in marriage, because there is no death anymore. There is no need for a man to marry his brother's widow, for anyone to struggle to produce heirs, or for your hope of immortality to rest in your children, because all will be alive to God. That is not how this world works. It's true. But this should be no surprise, for we've known from the beginning that this world is upside down that what you see 
is not what you get. Go all the way back to Moses. In Exodus chapter 3, for instance, he saw a spectacle that made him stop and wonder. A bush was burning, but it was not consumed. He got a glimpse of how things are in the kingdom of God, that what you see is not what you get. That, and that was just the beginning. To a people oppressed and enslaved in Egypt, God promised a land flowing with milk and honey. In the face of a world superpower, led by a mighty pharaoh, God himself would rescue his people by the hand of a lowly shepherd, reluctant and stuttering. To a nation that had no name for itself, a people despised and rejected and afflicted, God would attach his own name, his own divine, eternal name, so that they would marvel and say, what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is near to us whenever we call upon him. And when asked who sent, who sent him, Moses is to say, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. But the God, a God who reigns over the dead, that God is useless to us. Our God is much rather a God who reigns over the living. And that means that although Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have died, yet shall they live. Though their bodies have decayed and their bones lie in the ground for a time, yet they shall never die. What you see, what all the world sees and believes to be true, is not what you get. In the story of Moses at the burning bush, you begin to see a picture of how important it is to remember that the world has been turned upside down. How important it is to reorient yourself, to rethink from the ground up, Everything. That's what the Sadducees were unwilling to do. But it's what we have to do if there is, in fact, a resurrection. If, indeed, there's something that lies beyond the grave, something past the horizon. If, indeed, Christ has risen from the dead, never to die again. If, indeed, all the dead will be raised on the last day, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt, then we ought to spend our days not concerned with what we will eat or what we will wear or how we will amuse ourselves, but much rather in preparation, wakeful and watchful. This is the third to last Sunday in the church year, and this season leading into Advent is devoted to the last things, the things that will happen when the world comes to an end. It is timely for us that this happens in November, Because as we consider the end of the world, we see all of nature dying around us. The trees devoid of leaves and the grass gone dormant. Even the waters go still as the lakes and the rivers freeze over. It is a time to take stock and ask whether our eyes are fixed on things that lie in front of us or whether they're fixed on things above whether they're fixed on the things we can see right now, expecting to receive what we can see, or whether they're fixed on the things that are to come, the things unseen, the things eternal, the things that await this world in God's judgment. It's so important to remember that for you, the world has been turned on its head because you are in Christ. By the good work that God has begun to do in you by faith, by your baptism in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, by the resurrection which you now live 
even in this moment, you have become strangers and aliens to this world. If the world is upside down, you are the ones who now appear to be walking on your heads. It's important to remember that because it takes getting used to. It takes time and experience and discipline and correction and encouragement by the Holy Spirit through God's Word to unlearn all of the things that we take for granted in this world. Right and wrong, good and bad, holy and unholy, faithful and unfaithful. It takes time and experience and discipline and correction and encouragement to learn how to keep our eyes fixed on things above in the face of the constant temptation that draws our eyes back to this life. It takes time and experience and discipline and correction and encouragement to learn to love God and to love our neighbors. The starting and ending place for all of that is God's Word. Devote yourselves to the Scriptures so that you can know them and the power of God. Hear them and heed them day in and day out. Meditate on them day and night and come here every week to this sanctuary. God has given us his word in abundance, but God means for you to learn the faith together as the body of Christ, gathering here where he has promised to be in his word and sacraments. What people is there that has a God so near to it as yours is to you whenever you call upon him? Here in the preaching of God's word, in the forgiveness of sins, in the washing of baptism, in the eating and drinking of Christ's flesh and blood, you are taken out of this upside-down world, even if just for a moment, even if just briefly, to see God's word with the eyes of faith and to learn how things are meant to be, to regain your bearings, to taste and see again the goodness of the Lord, to receive again his love and all blessings, to keep your eyes fixed on the resurrection promised to you in Christ. And now may the peace which passes all understanding guard and keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. We continue with the collection of the offering. Please take a moment to sign the pads in the corner of your pew.